Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, everyone. This is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please support the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the ancient world. Thanks again for listening. In the obelisk inscription for 831, we join Shalmaneser in progress. In my 28th year, while I was staying at Kalhu, word was brought to me that the people of Patton had slain their lord Lubarna, and had raised Suri, who was not of royal blood, to the kingship over them. I dispatched Dayan Asur, commander of my immense armies, sending him at the head of my army and camp. He crossed the Euphrates at its flood and came to halt at Kinalua, the royal city. The awe-inspiring splendor of Asur, my lord, overcame Suri, who, not being of royal blood, went to his death. The people of Patton, being afraid before the terror of my mighty weapons, seized Suri's sons together with the transgressors and delivered them to me. I impaled these rebels on stakes. Sassy the Uzite prostrated himself at my feet, so I appointed him over them as king. I accepted silver, gold, lead, copper, iron, and ivory without measure from them. I made a heroic image of my royal self and had it set up in his temple in Kinalua, his royal city. Apart from how the usurper died, of fear by his own hand or at the hands of his people, the story is pretty straightforward. Though it's worth considering if the coup had been sparked by the level of Assyrian tribute demanded. But hey, they got a shiny new king, a shiny new statue, and just a handful of rebel impalings. And all it cost them was an enormous pile of treasure. When dealing with Assyria, you're welcome to call that a win. By the way, it's a bit of a spoiler, but this is the first and last time we'll ever hear about King Sassy, so we'll just have to wonder if he managed to live up to his name. To sum up recent Syrian events, and again, I'll point you to the maps I've posted, Shalmaneser now replaced the kings of Quay and Patton and plopped down an Assyrian fortress in the middle of Bit Agusi. 
We mentioned last episode that we don't really have the story on Hamath to the south. But just to the north of Bitagusi is another small kingdom I'd like to return to. The Aramean kingdom of Samal. I introduced Samal back in episode C-16, but just to refresh your memory, according to historian Trevor Bryce, during the last decades of the 10th century BC, a tribal chieftain named Gabar laid the foundations of a small kingdom on the eastern slope of the Amanus Range in southeastern Anatolia. The kingdom became known by the Semitic name Samal, which means north, probably reflecting a northern branch of an Aramean tribe. It was also known as Bitgabari. The king of Samal was named Kilamua, and we're lucky to have a well-preserved stele actually written by the king, which I was able to see in the Pergamon Museum back in 2021. And yes, I'll be posting pictures. The stele has a number of cool aspects. First, it shows a relief of Kilamua in Somalian royal regalia, consisting of a long fringed robe, a pointed fez-type hat, wristbands or bracelets, and sandals. Historian Brian Brown highlights that Kilamua's right arm is bent upwards, with the hand pointing above him to a row of four divine symbols. A horned hat, stylized horns, a winged sun disc, and a lunar crescent. His left arm hangs at his side, holding a drooping lotus flower. As Brown sums up, Overall, the appearance of Kilamua in this representation is very close to that of Assyrian kings, in particular to Shalmaneser III. The language of the accompanying inscription is neither Luwian nor Aramaic, but, somewhat surprisingly, Phoenician, though it's written using Aramaic letters. And the inscription gives us plenty of details about the kingdom's history and politics. And, spoiler alert, Kilamua was not afraid to dunk on a few royal predecessors. It begins, I am Kilamua, son of Hayanu. Gabar became king over Samal, but he was ineffective. There was Bima, but he was ineffective. There was my father Hayanu, but he was ineffective. There was my brother Sha'il, but... Anyone want to guess? Yeah, that's right. He was ineffective. But I, Kilamua, the son of Tamat, what I achieved, the former kings did not achieve. Tamat, by the way, was probably his mother. So, all you kids out there, remember to thank mom on your royal stelae. It continues that my father's house was in the midst of mighty kings and each one stretched forth his hand to fight. But I was in the hands of those kings like a fire that eats the beard, like a fire that eats the hand. The king of the Danunites tried to overpower me, but I hired against him the king of Assyria, who gave a maid for a lamb, a man for a garment." So, we've established that Dude has a way with words and is comfortable writing a few metaphors. 
To explain the last few lines, the Danunites refer to the Denian or Danaeans, likely the former Mycenaean Greeks. I mentioned back in episode C9 that Mycenaean Greek remnants made up part of the population of several Syrian coastal kingdoms, including Paton, Hilaku, and Quay. In fact, Quay was also known as Hiawa, as in Ahiawa, as in Achaeans. To coin a term, I'll refer to this region as the Mycenaean shoulder of Syria. With this understanding, let's go back to the inscription. Kilimua claims that the Danunites tried to overpower him, which likely meant that Samal had been attacked by its western neighbor of Quay. He then says that he hired King Shalmaneser to deal with the situation, which is maybe putting a positive spin on paying his Assyrian tribute. Kilimua then takes credit for prompting Shalmaneser's recent conquest of Quay and his killing and replacing of its king, which Kilimua boasts of doing for pennies on the dollar. Again, we're dealing with a talented wordsmith, and he's still got a bit more to say. I, Kilimua, the son of Hayanu, set upon the throne of my father. Before the former kings, the Mushkabim went cowed like dogs. I, however, to some I was a father, to some I was a mother, to some I was a brother. Him who had never seen the face of a sheep, I made the possessor of a flock. Him who had never seen the face of an ox, I made the possessor of a herd of cattle, and a possessor of silver, and a possessor of gold. He who had never seen linen since his youth, in my days he was covered in fine fabric. I took the Mushkabim by the hand. They were disposed toward me as an orphan is to his mother. What's interesting here is that Mushkabim appears to mean Luwian speakers or Neo-Hittites. So, Kilimu is relating how, under his Aramean predecessors, the Neo-Hittites were basically treated like dogs. At least until he, seeing their potential, needing their support, or just generally choosing not to be a jerk, decided to raise them up and help them prosper. Kilimu decides to wrap things up by dropping a serious warning. If any of his successors damages his inscription, may the Mushkabim not respect the Birim, widely interpreted as Aramaeans, and may the Birim not respect the Mushkabim. So, basically threatening future kings with violent ethnic strife, which was apparently a realistic fear. Brown even suggests that the reason the inscription was written in Phoenician may have been the neutrality of the language, not associated with any particular local ethnic group or political or class faction, allowing Kilimua to emphasize his role of father, mother, and brother to all of his people. By the time of our story, 830 BC, Kilimua had already been in power for a decade and would continue ruling for another 20 long and eventful years. In 830 BC, Shalmaneser only records one minor event, dispatching his armies against a territory called Kirhi. 
But the next two years, like a fireworks show, he went out with a big grand finale. The Hubishkians, boom. The Malhissites, pop, pop. The Manaeans, Harunians, Shordirites, Gilzanites, Shashganites, Andites, Namrites. I mean, the list goes on and on. Many of these are Zagros territories. And I've been fleshing out Shalmaneser Zagros campaigns on Patreon, so you can head over there for more detail. But the campaigns weren't only in the Zagros. In his 31st year, 828 BC, Shalmaneser records that I marched against Saparia, the fortress of the land of Musasir, and captured it, along with 46 cities of the Musasirites. I marched as far as the fortresses of the Orartians. I destroyed, devastated, and set fire to 50 of their cities. As usual lately, this isn't Shalmaneser doing the work. It's his Turtanu, Dayan Asur. But since we're back in Urartu and Musasir, let's dig in a bit more. I noted last episode that Musasir was an independent kingdom allied with Urartu, whose capital, also named Musasir, held a major temple to the chief Urartian god, Haldi. According to historian Karen Radner, the city of Musasir is attested to as far back as the late 3rd millennium BC, when it was known as Ardini, which is simply Hurrian for the city. Though Musasir's location remains a mystery, we know from later Assyrian campaigns that it sat somewhere high in the mountains between central Assyria and Lake Urmia likely in the region north of Erbil in modern Iraqi Kurdistan. We actually have a detailed relief of Musasir's Temple of Haldi, at least as it stood a century later, recovered from Assyrian Khorsabad. Radner notes that the illustration of Haldi's shrine, with its unique roof construction and its facade decorated with shields, spears, and statues, is perhaps the most celebrated architectural representation in all of Assyrian art. We also have images of Haldi himself. The earliest known depiction on a recovered shield from an Urartian temple depicts the deity as a warrior with a bow and javelin, and surrounded by an aura of flames that calls to mind the blazing sun. The image would seem to strengthen the view that there is a conceptual link between Haldi and the Iranian Mithra, especially considering that Urartian traditions played an important role in shaping later Achaemenid royal ideology. In other reliefs, Haldi's depicted as a beardless man with horns, a crown, and sometimes wings, standing atop a lion. I was pretty surprised and delighted listening to Trevor Cully's The History of Persia podcast last year when he mentioned that echoes of the regional worship of Haldi may have endured for centuries. Cully related how the Greek general Xenophon approaching the Armenian border in 401 BC with his retreating army of 10,000 Greeks, recorded the presence of a group of Chaldee mercenaries. Cully noted that 
The Kaldi appeared to share their name with the chief god of ancient Urartu and spoke a language unrelated to the others around them, with Urartian, as I mentioned, being an isolated language. He continued that it's possible that these Kaldi, who appear in numerous classical sources, were the last holdouts of the Urartian culture. The Assyrian campaign against Urartu and Musasir in 828 BC coincided with two major events. The first was the death of the Urartian king, Sarduri I, who may have been killed in the conflict. He was succeeded by his son, Ishpuini, who'd end up ruling for nearly two decades, very critical decades for both Urartu and Assyria. The second major event was the founding of a new Urartian royal capital along the western shores of Lake Van, known as Van Kalesi or Tushpa. According to historian Mirjo Salvini, the oldest building at Van Kalesi is the so-called Sardursburg, named for Sarduri I. It consists of a few rows of large, well-squared limestone blocks holding six cuneiform inscriptions in the Assyrian language. The tone of the inscriptions is also pretty Assyrian, with Sarduri calling himself Great King, Powerful King, King of the Universe, King of Nairi, King Without Equal, Great Shepherd Who Does Not Fear the Fight, King Who Represses Rebels. Sarduri says, I have brought here these foundation stones from the city Alni-Unu. I have built this wall. As Salvini highlights, with this written document, we have the beginning not only of the history of the Urartian kingdom, but also of written documentation period for the entire Anatolian-Armenian-Iranian plateau. Radner suggests that Sarduri's inscriptions were likely the creation of an Assyrian, either captive or renegade, who was familiar with the letter-writing conventions of the Assyrian government and therefore also its administrative practices more generally. The advice and services of such an individual would have been invaluable at a time when consolidating and organizing the young Urartian state was the key challenge for Sarduri. It may also explain many structural similarities in how the two kingdoms were organized. Speaking of Assyrian organizational structure, at this point, we really need to flesh out our understanding of the empire as it stood in 828 so we can better understand the events of the next few years. Because as much as I know you're going to miss them, it was at this point that Shalmaneser hung up his stylus and stopped writing royal inscriptions. As for what came next, well, from the perspective of the Neo-Hittite kingdoms, there was only one real headline which was that no Assyrian king would cross the Euphrates for the following 23 years. And the reasons for this were well established by the end of Shalmaneser's reign. Let's start with imperial structure. According to historian Mark van de Meerup, by 828, Assyria proper, 
the region stretching from the Zagros to the Euphrates, was uniformly organized under a provincial administration. Men appointed by Shalmaneser acted as his direct representatives in the provinces, while the provinces themselves were integrated into a system of maintenance of the god Asur whose sole temple was in the city of Assur, and who functioned as the god for the entire land of Assyria. Every province had to supply basic foodstuffs to support him, which, in effect, meant feeding the central Assyrian state bureaucracy. In political terms, the provinces were equivalent in status, though some were accorded greater autonomy. In all directions beyond this region lay kingdoms under the yoke of Asur, vassal rulers who owed annual tribute directly to the Assyrian king. The enormous size of the Assyrian empire meant that Shalmaneser relied on an extensive bureaucracy. The power of the higher administrators and military officers was considerable, and they became more independent as the king grew older. The most visible external sign was delegating warfighting to Dayan Asur, but it's highly likely that other aspects of his kingly duties similarly slipped from his hands. Watching the growing weakness at the core, aggrieved or ambitious Assyrian nobles began pondering the once unthinkable. The end result in 827 was Assyrian civil war. Whether or not he instigated things, the rebellious faction coalesced around Shalmaneser's older son, the crown prince Assur Dananpal, who may have just grown tired of waiting for his chance to rule the empire. The Assyrian Turtanu Dayan Assur vanishes from the records, and he may have been an early loyalist casualty. In his absence, the defense of Shalmaneser's regime fell to his younger son, Shamshi Adad, which made it not only a civil war, the first in Assyrian history, but also a family war between two brothers. It was also an existential threat to the recently reforged empire. Historian George Rue notes that 27 cities, including such major cities as Assur, Nineveh, Arbella, and Arapa, joined the revolt of Assur Paul, or, as Shamshi Adad described it, fell into the sedition, rebellion, and wicked plotting instigated by his brother. This is the context that led to the creation of one of the most famous monuments of the ancient world the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser III, or Black Obelisk of Assyria. I should start off by noting that this is not the first Assyrian obelisk. We've briefly mentioned two or three others. There was the Broken Obelisk of Ashur-Belkala, the White Obelisk, likely raised by Ashur-Nasserpal I, and the obelisk raised by Ashur-Nasserpal II in his palace courtyard at Kalhu conventionally known as the Rassam Obelisk. I'll likely cover the first three in detail in a Patreon episode, so you can head over to Patreon for more info. To start with the basics, the Black Obelisk is made of black limestone and stands roughly two meters or six feet high, 
which suggests that its contents were intended to be seen and read. It features 20 panel-style relief scenes, five on each side, with accompanying cuneiform text. The reliefs are intended to be read horizontally, continuing around each side of the obelisk. In other words, we have five comic panel-like scenes, each depicting the tribute of a specific vassal king. I've seen the original at the British Museum and was able to take close-up photos of a replica, so I'll post lots of photos online. The highest register, across all four sides, is devoted to the tribute of Sua of Gilzanu, located in modern southeastern Turkey. The second register covers the tribute of Jehu the Israelite, which we've already discussed. The third register covers the tribute of Musri. Similar to the case with the Battle of Karkar, this is sometimes interpreted as Egypt. But if you've listened to my Patreon episodes on the Libyan pharaohs of Egypt, you know this is pretty unlikely. At Karkar, the term Musri likely referred to the Musraeans, Anatolian allies of coastal Quay. But on the Black Obelisk, it likely meant someone else. Radner notes that the Assyrian name Musasir is likely derived from the region's designation as Musri, most clearly in the inscriptions of Tiglath-Pileser I. So, though I haven't seen it proposed elsewhere, it seems possible that the third register records the tribute of a king of Musasir. To round things out, the fourth register covers the tribute of Marduk Apla Usur, not the later Babylonian king, but a ruler of the Middle Euphrates region of Suhu, from which our old friend King Suhi of Carchemish may have hailed. The lowest register covers the tribute of King Hal Paruntaya II of Patan. Above and below the five relief panels is a continuous cuneiform text, much of which you've heard me read on this podcast because it touches on every single Assyrian campaign between the very first year of Shalmaneser's reign, 859 BC, right down to the last campaign of Dayan Asur in 828 BC. Which is why we know that the obelisk was created sometime after this, in the context of the Assyrian Civil War, which began in 827. One of the most obvious questions is, why were these five kings, or regions, chosen for the reliefs? The obelisk seems intended to highlight Assyrian conquests in the north, Gilzanu and Musasir, and the west. Israel may have represented southern coastal Syria, Patan the northern coast, and Suhu the often rebellious Middle Euphrates. Babylonia to the south was an Assyrian ally, which is why it wasn't included. But it's curious that they didn't include a Zagros kingdom, particularly since several recent Assyrian campaigns had targeted the region. An equally important question is why the obelisk was made at all. We know it was erected in the courtyard of the royal palace at the Assyrian showpiece of Kalhu or Nimrud 
Paired with a very similar obelisk raised by Shalmaneser's father, Asher Nasser Paul II. So, on the one hand, Shalmaneser was just doing what his father'd done, raising a monument to highlight his royal accomplishments. But if we factor in the Civil War, we might get a little more context. The rebels held Asur, the ancient traditional Assyrian capital, home of their god and burial place of all their kings. That's a pretty strong hand to play. We can also assume that, like many people seeking to overturn the status quo, Asur Paul framed his rebellion as a return to ancient tradition. The empire's heading in the wrong direction, the kingly duties are being delegated, jumped-up functionaries like Dion Asur are wielding inordinate power, so support Asur Paul, a vital young king who will get us back on track. The Loyalists played a very different hand. Their base and centerpiece was Kalhu, a magnificent showpiece built and embellished by only two kings, Shalmaneser III and his father, Ashurnasirpal II. Their strongest argument may have been, sure, we need to accommodate a growing empire by tweaking a few details on how we run things, but honestly, aren't you better off than you were four years ago? Or the Assyrian equivalent, aren't you better off than you were before this king and his father made you the wealthiest and most powerful empire the world has ever known? If so, maybe take a look at this pair of obelisks, because they'll show you who you can thank. The audience, of course, wasn't the general population the vast majority of whom were agricultural workers, but the Assyrian nobility, particularly the governors and generals who controlled the Assyrian army. From the little we know of the conflict's details, neither side was willing to settle for anything less than total victory, which meant that either Shamshi Adad had to capture Asur and destroy his brother, or Asur Paul had to take Kalhu and destroy his father and brother. Each side had at their disposal a massive army of well-trained, highly experienced troops. To me, it sounds like a recipe for absolute carnage. Three years later, as the war continued to rage unabated, the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III finally passed away. He'd technically ruled for 35 years, though in his final years it's very, very likely that his loyal son, Shamshi Adad, was effectively running the empire. On Shalmaneser's death, it was left to the young prince, now raised to king, to try to contain the maelstrom of chaos unleashed by his older brother. The Ancient World Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network along with My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, The Explorers Podcast, and other great shows.